Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 116 of Drinks with Tony and our guest, Kim Grunenfelder. Hey, have you ever thought about like writing from grief and tragedy in your life? Do you, do you think of any times in our life that we've had grief and tragedy where we can kind of switch it around and maybe create something out of it? Well, guess what? I'm teaching a writing through grief and tragedy writing workshop at UCLA Extension starting on February 16th. So go to uclaextension.edu. That's uclaextension.edu. Search for Duchesne and join the class if you'd like to figure out how we, uh, how, how us writers, um, what do you call it? <laughs> Cope? <laughs> Anyway, all right, on to other business. Uh, there's still room in my screenwriting workshop that starts on January 25th. The class limit is 10, and after that, we are full. Go to writingworkshops.com. That's writingworkshops.com, and search for Duchesne. But, Tony, I want to take a workshop with you for free. How can I do that? Well, the Los Angeles Public Library lets you do that. Take my free creative writing workshop at on January 6th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Go to LAPL.org for more details. That is LAPL.org. Wow, there's a lot of classes coming up. Um, it's because I love storytelling. And speaking of storytelling. Hi, I'm Kim Grunenfelder, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Welcome to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Kim Grudenfelder. She's the author of Hangovers and Hot Flashes, Keep Calm and Carry Big Drinks, the novel, and her latest book, My Ex's Wedding. Hi, Kim. Hi. Uh, it's it's actually uh, Keep Calm and Carry a Big Drink. See, I, I knew I was going to screw something up. <laughs> I, I got that's your name. Okay, no, I, you got you got it pretty close. You got X's wedding. That's the big one. You know? the, the that's X's the wedding. newest one. That's the one I'm trying to sell. So everybody buy my X's wedding. Thank you. And buy All the right. one by Kim Grunenfelder. There is actually apparently another my X's wedding out there, which is just really. It's not. I mean, I love the title, and it's all about uh, my character Sam is a ghostwriter who is. Um, who is going to not only um, attend her ex's wedding, but be in her ex's wedding. And so, you know, that was, I couldn't have any other title, but it turns yeah. out there is another title, totally different kind of book. The other one's like a uh, romance and it's, it's serious. And mine is a screwball comedy. So <laughs> please, please buy the one with my name on it. <laughs> yes. The, um, the, uh, Oh, I had so many questions all at once, and then my COVID brain shut it down. Do you, got the, do you know? <clears throat> I, you know, I, I found when I'm talking to people, sometimes I'm forgetting words. Oh well, yes, yes. I thought that was a function of age. I'm glad that's just COVID because I'm, I'm, I'm finding that too. Where I'll be like, you know, it's, it's the thing. It's that you know, my kid will look at me. He's like, stove. Yes. Yeah that yeah maybe it's age but it's accelerated all of us like 20 years <laughs> yes <laughs> it's nuts um but the uh oh the the, the ghostwriter in the book do you have yeah. experience ghostwriting or was i that actually don't um it, uh, the idea for the ghostwriter started because at the time i started the book like that particular week on the new york times bestseller list um like 40 percent 
of the books that were on the list were ghostwritten. And I also sometimes work in publishing. I also direct audiobooks sometimes. And so, you know, I have a, I, I know when a ghost writing thing has happened. I've also been up for some ghost writing jobs that I've decided not to do. Um, not because I don't really like the people and they weren't interesting. They were, it was just, um, you know, I write fiction and ghostwriting, you know, for the most part, a ghostwriter, I do know people who are ghostwriters. They go, they interview the person, you know, three or four times, uh, minimum three or four times. I mean, if you get like a famous politician who doesn't have time to write a, their own biography, you would go three or four times. Sometimes they're sorry about my phone. Well, the eggs um, are done. Go ahead. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I just thought that was sort of an interest. Like I had never seen anybody write about ghostwriting. No. And my initial thought was, well, maybe that's because I personally hate it when people write about writers. <laughs> so maybe, but, but to me, the ghostwriting thing is just so fascinating because, um, you know, you really, you can make a living writing these stories that are, that are other people's stories and, and bringing to life someone's actual life or someone's actual um I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of ghostwriting. You can also do, you know, here's a book all about how to plan the perfect wedding. And you can ghostwrite that for, for somebody who, who's known for, you know, wedding planning. And, um, and so that was why I came up with the ghostwriter thing was I hadn't seen it before. Yeah. When, when you see the, when you see the New York Times bestseller list and 40% of it's ghostwritten, do you kind of feel cheated? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I talk about that a little bit in the book is, um, I mean, we, we also have a problem now with even with fiction. There are certain authors that continue to write books, even though they've been dead for decades. And <laughs> if you look up the authors, you will know if they've been dead since 1973, that person hasn't actually written the book. So yeah, I do. I also, I mean, I, I made jokes about somebody, told, I don't actually even know if this is true, but somebody told me that uh, one of the Kardashians had written a book and <laughs> just said, um, okay, no, she had a book ghost written. I don't, right. I don't remember which one it was. And I said, but the second thing is, do you really mean to tell me she's written more books than she's read? Cause I'm going to say, no, it's, it's definitely ghost written. I mean, <laughs> Kardashians are not known as, you know, a, a, an intellectual group. <laughs> I don't see one of them going, I really need to take the time to get this novel. Well, I don't know if it was a novel either, but, but to get this book out of the way, I really just need to get it on paper. No, I don't. The, um... Yeah, I do. I, and so that was another reason I wanted to talk about it was, um, you know, uh, it, it, I don't, I feel less cheated when I'm, I'm not, and I, I, I won't say who's been ghostwritten, but, but there's a way to tell. Um, if a celebrity writes, thank you to blah, blah, blah for organizing myself, my, my, I'm sorry, thank you to so-and-so for organizing my thoughts, that's a hint that it's been ghostwritten. Um, How arrogant is that? Because it's just, it, it's like, so they put their name on the book as, you know, by Sylvester mm -hmm. Stallone or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, they were just interviewed for four days. And yeah. and did they even read the book? You know, like with the Kardashian thing, I would, it was like, oh, wait, you read a book? And I would just wow, be exactly. outraged. And it's like, no, no, I wrote one. Oh, exactly. Okay. Um, and, and I can think of at least one time when, when somebody hadn't read the book and, and was very upset about the book later. Um, <laughs> Which, which is just like, okay, but that's on you. It's one thing not and, to have the time to write a book, 
Um, but it's another thing. But uh, one of the reasons, so I don't know when it will be out compared to the, the interview, but Barack Obama has written a book. And the reason why it's so late is because he actually wrote it. <laughs> and so it took a lot longer because uh, he actually wrote it. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that book partially because I know he actually wrote it. So Yeah, it's, you know, I'm sure there's a team of like five editors and an assistant sitting there, you know. Oh, I'm and, sure there are editors. I'm sure he actually does have, you know, yeah. an assistant who does organize the thoughts. I'm sure he's got somebody who uh, can cite, you know, various things right he needs for for the bibliography but i'm just saying he actually wrote the book and that is yeah hey, he's um, in the action yeah it's it's uh i guess the cult of celebrity because they and it just and it almost like you know it's it, like the um the example you said where the guy didn't even read the book until it came out and yeah. that, that like that hurts me to my core because we write, we take so, we take so much time to write something that may never ever get published. Yeah, and it's and it's what we do. And then someone just has the balls to sit there and probably be a terrible interviewer if they're not reading the book. You know that yeah. the per, the ghostwriter just sit there banging their head on their coffee table, going, "Okay, I need you. I need you to stop looking at your phone. I need right, you to turn right. off the TV. We right. need to do some work here." Right. Um, right. And, and again, like, I haven't ghostwritten, so I I personally don't have any of those stories, but I, I have certainly talked to ghostwriters. Yeah. And, and it's also interesting, you know, from what I understand, it's it's interesting about which ones actually show up and they're they're pretty smart and they're they're like, you know, maybe a reality show person or something wouldn't necessarily have the reputation for being smart, but like they show up, they've got their stuff together, they're ready for their interviews, they take it seriously. Like it really just depends on the person. Um, oh, we, I want to, so I want a list of all these people and <laughs> just, just in case something happens to you, because we need to have what's in your brain and then, <laughs> and then you won't be in trouble for it. You know, it's, this could be way in the future, but at least the list is written somewhere. Yeah. Like your, your husband has the key to the security deposit, the box or whatever. Who actually goes through it. Yeah. 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 And then the horror stories of who's the baddie and who's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's one of those things I can never really talk about. On I, I'll talk about people I like. I, I, I don't tend to talk about people badly. Uh, because, yeah. Well, and also I don't want to put that vibe out there. You know, it's, it's that's. I try not to complain so much. So. Well, it's, and I putting the vibe that makes sense because if you put the vibe out there, and this, if you put the vibe out there, you're actually associating with the person. Yeah. Um, even if the person, if, if, you know, like if you don't like someone, uh, you, you throw it out there, you're kind of like, going, <clears throat> you're bringing them into your zeitgeist in a weird way. And that, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. And I'd rather not be thinking about certain people. So, you know, it doesn't really matter if they've ghostwritten the book or not, or had one ghostwritten because right. I don't want to think about them. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, Tom Cruise. And, and there are the other thing is there are good ghostwriters out there, and frankly, they're going to write a better book than a lot of these people anyway. So yeah, uh, yeah. You know, um, when Donald Trump, when the Art of the Deal, I mean, the, the, his ghostwriter, you know, talking about Art of the Deal, I just thought, yeah, but you're actually a good writer, so it's a better book. Like I, I understand he felt bad later that he had written the book, but I totally understand why he did at the time. Yeah. Because you're just trying to make stuff better. Anyway, you're trying to make a buck, and you know, you're just a lot. Some of your clients are assholes. Just yeah, her, right? 
Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, wait, we got an asshole in office. All right. You know, and it's, yeah, people trying to backtrack and apologize for that. It's like, don't worry about it. It's not your fault. <laughs> anyway. So anyway, what else? Do, what else do you want to ask me? Nothing, actually. That Nothing. was it. So thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, you were. Um, okay, this is fun. You were mm -hmm. a writer on Jeopardy. What? I was. That was my first writing job. Uh, was uh, yeah on the show Jeopardy. I was the first category I ever wrote. It's, uh, also, this was before, to clarify something, this was before Jeopardy had writers, which is a whole other thing we'll get into. We were technically called researchers, not writers, because we weren't Writers Guild back then. Um, oh, but I oh, did write. And my yes, my first category was boys, which I wrote for, I was 19, I was still in college, and uh, there was a college tournament, or no, a teen tournament. Well, one of the two, college or teen tournament. Um, and I, I wrote a category for it, and... Um, sort of barged my way into the showrunners to say, I'm the only teenager working here and this is Teen Jeopardy. And so I want to write categories. And basically at that time, because it wasn't on the plus side for me, because there was no Writers Guild, because there was no audition per se, he was like, okay, go write some questions. We'll see if we can use them. And I'm like, yes, thank you. And I went running and, you know, running back out to, to the office. I was a production associate at the time. And, and uh, you know, within an hour or two came back with this category called boys. And this man was probably about 60. And I just, I think I sort of amused him a lot of the time because my energy level was that of a teenager, you know? And, and he was, he just looked at it and said, huh, okay. Yeah, these are good. These are wordplay though. Can you do any science or pop culture? And I'm like, yes. And then that night I went home and I, I wrote some pop culture questions, which um, the pop culture questions just meant like, you know, back then I wrote, uh, well, in the boys category, I'd written Beastie Boys. That's what had started it all was, um, you know, I back then, you know, in the late eighties, Beastie Boys was very popular to young people, but older people didn't quite know who they were. Like now they're, Iconic, my kid, you know, my kid has quoted Beastie Boys, but at the time they were considered, you know, a little more. Uh, whoa, 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 let's stop there. You're a great parent. <laughs> he likes Green Day too. <laughs> uh, they're all right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't fault anyone on Green Day. Yeah, Beastie Boys, um, when we were watching election news, uh, the Tuesday night when everything was dragging out, uh, at 3.30 in the morning, Wisconsin went from negative 100,000 Biden to switching to about positive 10,000. And, and my kid just sang, no, sleep to Wisconsin. And we were up late, <laughs> late but it, that just cracked me up. I was like, oh, he knows that song. Okay, great. That's all. Yeah, yeah. That's you're just cool. like, you're like, I've done my job. Good night, yeah. everybody. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I did that. Uh, like I said, technically, legally, I have to say I was a researcher, not a writer. But yeah, I wrote a bunch of categories, particularly for the team tournament and the college tournament. Um, I would do less. I, I would actually do more of the rewriting of questions during the regular time of the year. And I was I was very lucky. I um, uh, the producer held a spot for me as a researcher, literally the day I graduated after, uh, from college. Like, or it was, uh, we were graduating Friday and I guess I started Monday, but like, like the spot had been reserved for me. So, um, 
you know, I had a bunch of friends who actually, I remember being vaguely like, do I even want this job? Cause I remember talking to the showrunner saying, um, well, you know, I have friends who are like going to Europe for three months to go find themselves. And I don't know, maybe I should be doing that. And, and he's like, you'll find yourself, you'll be here. I'll see you on Monday. And he just walked off like so confused. He had given me this job. <laughs> I was like, well, do I want this? You know, and of course I was an idiot. Of course I wanted the job, but, but there was that moment of like, well, that, okay. Yeah. I guess I have a job on Monday. That was, you know, a, a great problem to have. You can't say no to Jeopardy. No, no. And it's still, um, like I said, I, I, my first category I wrote when I was 19, I'm still talking about that show decades later. That's how, I mean, you know, when I was on it, I mean, you assumed it would go for a couple of years, but I mean, the way TV works, you assume everything goes a couple of years. Right. Yeah. I had no idea. I might not have left. I had no idea that I could already be retired as a writer, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, nobody knew the people who were still there didn't know. I mean, uh, I, you know, I don't think Alex Trebek knew this would go this long. I mean, it was, it was, it's become iconic in a way that I don't think anybody knew it was going to. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> with, but at the same time, <clears throat> sorry. Um, at the same time, if he stayed there, would you have, would you have had time to write your books? No. And that was actually why I quit. Um, I quit when I was, I think 22. I started at 20. And then uh, I think I quit at 22. And, and the reason why was because, yeah, I, I felt, you know, working on that show, I, I would just be exhausted at the end of the day, mentally yeah. worn out. And um, I really wanted to write screenplays and I really wanted to write TV shows. And, and I, was, uh, uh, I was studying the Meisner technique at a, at a school that was very intense. They do a two-year program, but it's pretty intense. And, and I, I was doing it to become a better writer. And I felt when I finished, like um, I, I wanted to go and be a writer now. And I wanted to, um, you know, after the training, it's like, I really liked writing game show questions and it was really fun, but I didn't feel like that was my path. And because I got the job so young, I think if I had gotten the job at 30, I think I would have just kept it. Cause I think as I got a little older, I got a little more cautious about things. But at the time I just thought, well, if I don't leave, because I, I do know people who their entire lives, they write game show questions and that's what they do and, and they enjoy it. Um, but I just didn't, that wasn't what I thought I was supposed to be doing. So it's hard. Yeah. Cause it's, it's like, we call it uh, the golden handcuff. It really but, was. Cause it was yeah. a good show with good, nice people. And you know, the, I guess on tape days, we got there at nine in the morning, but I mean, like you didn't, I, the, the day was from 10 to five. I mean, it was, it was, there were a lot of benefits to the job, yeah. um, but it, it just was for me. And I understand why people keep jobs forever. For me, it was just like, yeah, this was great. I'm 22. I don't want to be doing this for the next, you know, at that time, I thought it was going to be five or 10 years. I had no yeah. idea it could have been, you know, decades. Um, but that was, it, I don't regret, I still don't regret my decision. I mean, yeah. it was, it was, um, you know, I, I, it was really cool and really fun for when I was doing it, but that I also understand why with golden handcuffs, why people have golden handcuffs. Cause there are a lot, you know, most people don't, well, at least in my friends, nobody I know really actively hates their job. It's oh. just, it's exhausting. It's, I mean, particularly if, if you work in production, it can mentally wear you out. Right. Um, but, but most people in Hollywood, 
are usually pretty nice. Um, on a show like that, if there really is an asshole, they'll be fired after 13 weeks. You have a 13 week contract. I mean, yeah. you know, so it was, it, there were, it was, and it was great and it was fun. And it was, um, you know, I had friends who were struggling at the beginning. I mean, cause in your early twenties, you're struggling and, and like, couldn't even get a PA job. And I was writing on, you know, the, at that time, the number two show in daytime. And so, um, it, it was hard to leave, but it also wasn't. It's weird. Like I said, the older I get, the more I would, you know, because now we have a mortgage and we have a kid and, and that stuff. And, and I probably would have stayed because it's like, it not only wasn't bad because people have, have assumed, you know, like, oh my God, was it? Because there are shows out there that are really horrible that I've known people who are, you know, get out the first chance they get. And, and I've been asked that over the years and, and no, I, it was actually great. The people were great. Um, I, I was smart. It was, it's a very smart show. Um, but it just, I, I wanted to be writing screenplays. I wanted to be doing other stuff. And so that's that why I left so early and literally decades later, the show is still on the air. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, I still think it's a great move. You went to, um, you went to acting, you, you went, you went through an acting program to become I a did an writer. acting training. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for two years, I did the Meisner technique. I did not study at neighborhood playhouse, um, uh, which I didn't study at the one in New York and, and there was a version of it that's out here. I actually studied um, with, a, with a, there was a casting director who recommended this, this other school. And so I went there and it was very intense training in the sense that you, it was there, it was two nights a week, but it was like four hour nights and you had to rehearse three days a week, depending on what you were working on. And so it was, very intense. There were actors who were in my class who went on to be famous actors. Um, and, and it was very good training. What I learned from that was that I'm not an actor. That was the biggest thing I learned because the, the other actors I would watch, and there were some incredibly talented people in this class, could break down a script and only care about their character and be so in the moment and just be, you know, whatever was going on could just sort of ride with it. And I was the one who was breaking down the script and looking at all the characters and looking at the world and looking how, well, we should change this to this. And I would, you know, I, when I'd be in the moment, I wouldn't be in the moment because I'd be thinking about the words as I was, as I was doing, you know, the, the scene. And, and uh, so it was, it was great training. It was great training. Acting training is great training because it really does teach you um, how, why people are acting. Well, because I'm also, I'm vaguely Aspergery. If someone says something to me, I just take that at face value. Like I don't assume people are lying to me. It just seems tiring to assume that. And acting training didn't teach you that people were lying, but taught you that people always have a point of view, no matter what is going on. And so what they tell you might not be completely the truth, or they may be telling you something because they want something from you or, you know, or they want a little that, you know, things like, um, uh, I'm only 10 minutes away. Don't leave. And they're actually like 25 minutes away. Well, they're, they're lying, but they're not, it's not a big lie. It's more of a, please don't leave. I screwed up kind of thing. And, and so acting training taught me that, which helped with the writing because, you know, I can, particularly for my books, I can have characters doing totally different things than their inner monologue is saying, uh, which is what we as humans do a lot of the time. I mean, it's, it's, I wish I lived truthfully at every moment. In reality, I am, I'm acting like I'm okay and I'm filled with self-loathing so much of the time. You know, it, I had a friend who a couple of years ago said, um, well, 
you're just one of those women that always has her shit together. And I wish I could be more like you. And I said to my husband later that night, it's like, we've never met. Why would she say that? (laughs) But it was a compliment. Yeah, that wasn't though, because. Uh, You know, I wish wish there was a technology where we could just, and and I just, let's let's work on this together because this idea just came in now and if it becomes it will we'll pull together and start our company a technology that just writes our uh inner thoughts it transcribes them at the end of the day we just plug in somewhere and we and it just and it goes through everything that we've thought and then we could just look at it and go okay right it would be if I had that. It would be amazing how negative those that transcript was. I've I've talked about how my inner voice is just you know she's a bitch. She's just mean. Uh, so yeah, that that would be a good idea with the inner thoughts. Anyway, um, so yeah, so that's why I did acting training, and that was that was good. I haven't talked about acting training in years. That's kind of funny. Yeah, um, and the and the craft of acting just I didn't because uh, I I had written, I wrote a screenplay and I got to be on set for the whole shoot mm-hmm. a story consultant and um and, you know and i spent uh years with those characters and yeah. then to see actors come at them and, and make it monumentally better oh my <laughs> god like, yeah it is when you have good actors it's so fun to watch your material come to life because they're bringing layers that you haven't even thought of that you might have accidentally written that you don't even know <sighs> um I, I wrote a screenplay years ago that did not end up happening, but like various actors were getting attached. And there's this one character who's just the total party girl. She just has, you know, a martini in one hand and a cigarette in the, in the other. And she's got all the best lines. And, and, and she's just a very fun character. And a lot of actresses were interested in at least reading the script and, and doing a take on it. And I met with one of them at lunch and she said, I love how you wrote her as an alcoholic but in a way that she doesn't realize she's an alcoholic yet. And it, it was one of those, I did write her as an alcoholic. And I went back and I changed the script, the ending of the script for that character. It was an ensemble piece and I changed it. So she starts going to AA and, and she's, she's an actress. She's a soap opera actress. That's how old that script is. When, remember when we had soap opera actresses? So she's a soap opera actress and she starts going to AA meetings and she find you know, she realizes there are a bunch of actors and directors there and it's, you know, it's, it's not scary at all. It's kind of fun. You get to go up, you know, you're just meeting over coffee or whatever. Uh, but that was because of that actor's note about, uh, you know, I love that you wrote her as an alcoholic, but like one that she doesn't know she's an alcoholic. It was just like, yes, I did. Wow. Okay um yeah so yeah i love i love seeing i love seeing that i love i love watching actors take and that's that is the one thing i miss about writing screenplays instead of books my books have been pretty successful and i've been very lucky um and and you have total control over your books for the most part and that part's amazing but i never watch actors actually perform anything because it's a book, you know, it's, it's being performed in people's heads as they read. So, um, yeah. well, but, what was it? What was, what was the first screenplay you wrote where you got to see actors, uh, right. Reading your dialogue, uh, not reading your dialogue. That's a terrible thing. I'm sorry. All actors, you're not reading dialogue. We were just, your craft is amazing. It was actually a play that I wrote and I'm trying to remember what it was called. And we did the first read through and, um, 
God, I'm not remembering the, I, I was in my twenties when I, I was like in my early twenties when I wrote it and it, it, it was on for like a night. I mean, it was one of those, it was those 99 cent seat theaters that you have to, you, you have to go to because so many friends are in 99 seat theater plays and, and, you know, you have the, Oh, you're in a play. Yay. Um, but we did the first read through and, and the actors who came were just like, there was one scene where the actress just during the read through had a tear go down her face as she was uh, basically argue, arguing with or trying to justify to an ex why she had stayed away and, and um, you know, but obviously loved him and was tempted to come back. And, and she had a tear go down her face that she just very quickly whisked off and kept going with the argument. And it was just great to watch because it was like, yeah, you would be feeling that if you know someone's no good for you and you got to stay strong, but that doesn't mean you're not going to be crying. And and she did it in such a way that like, you just knew the, the character was going to leave the room and burst into tears. You know, yeah. it was, it was awesome. What was yours? What was the screenplay that you did? Uh, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it came out a couple years ago and uh, Eric Stoltz directed it. And um, oh, wow. yeah, it was based on my novel. So there was, so, so I had, I had massaged these characters for like 10 years before mm -hmm. it got to a, film mm -hmm. set and then to just you know even just the choices they made were because it was loosely based on my life and the, the, uh -huh. the uh paul edelstein played my dad and it's just like when he came out of wardrobe with hair i went i was just he like was my dad from the 80s wow. it blew my mind i was like oh my god how does that happen it, yeah wow yeah, like it, actors can just, I mean, I have tremendous respect for actors. I am not one of them and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Tremendous they, respect for actors. I, I, and I have friends who are actors and they're, they're, I mean, when they're good, their work is just invisible in so many ways. Yeah. Like when they're good, it just looks like, oh, so he went on the set and he just did this thing. And, and there's just so much more involved and, and, and so much more when it comes to film and TV, so much more involved than people realize. Um, uh, with everything going on with COVID right now, my son's a theater major at his mm -hmm. college. And one of the classes he has now had to take was he had a, he did an acting class via Zoom, which, you know, is one of the requirements. I mean, there's just so many theater requirements and he's getting close to being finished. And it's like, well, I gotta take these classes. So I'm gonna do it. My actor friend said, I actually think it's good for him to take a Zoom class because yes, we all wanna be in theater, but a lot of us make our money on film or in film. And I don't know an actor who is not emoted to a C-clamp at 11 p.m. <laughs> said, you know, good point. Yeah. You know, because the actor's been sent, the, the lead's been sent home and you're still finishing your day. I mean, it's and, uh, the actors, actors just, I, I'm not good at it, but I have tremendous respect for it. And I think, you know, as, as writers, we're banging it, we're banging our heads against it to get a book out. It's, it's there's yeah. daily work. There's a ton of work before we even get to our first book. There's years of, you know, writing yeah. the, the really crap stuff. And the, then, and then I later realized, oh my God, it is the same process for actors. They oh, have yeah. to be banging it day after day after day. You don't just say I'm an actor. You need to be so dedicated. And, and it's yeah. just, I love that. I, I just, I love it on so many levels. It, it, it actually hit me as I was, um, I was, I was sitting in on a casting session, uh, shadowing a director. And uh -huh. I was like, why are these poor people doing this? These, these are, these are people that are great actors and they're coming in to say, yeah. two, you know, two lines. And as I was yeah. walking away, I was like, 
Of course they do. They're, they're actors like I'm a writer. Of course yeah. they do. I of couldn't take that rejection because I'm not committed, but I'll take all the rejection just to stay a writer because I am I am a writer and that's it. Yeah, that, that's very true with, with uh, the rejection. It's interesting because I, I did a couple of auditions, like I said, in my early 20s and I couldn't take the rejection and I took it personally. And um, I'm also not a good actor. So there was that problem walking in. Because again, I'm paying too much attention to the dialogue in my head. I can't get out of my head. Um, the benefit to me of a writer, of, of being a writer, is if I get rejected, I'm not getting rejected. My material is getting rejected. And yeah. so for me, it's a little bit easier. Um, but I also do feel like the writers, particularly once you get to a certain age, writers, actors, like anybody over the age of 30, who is still a writer, who is still an actor, who's still directing, who's still doing production design, you know, at a 99 seat theater. And just like, that is what you are because otherwise you get quit by now. It's too hard. You get too much rejection. You get too many disappointments. There are, you know, so few um, ups compared to the downs. Yeah. And, and particularly with writing. I mean, because there's so many downs within any project. I mean, I've written screenplays, I've written plays, I've written books. You know, there are days where, I mean, I've had days, particularly with books, where I started the day with a higher word count than I ended with, you know, and you just have that day where it's like, okay, so I could have started the morning with a martini and we'd still be here, which isn't completely true, but it feels like it at the time, you yeah. know, or the characters aren't doing what I want them to do, or I'm just staring at it. Um, there, I, I have a, a friend whose husband was encouraging her to finish a book by saying, well, there's nothing sexier than a published author. And he didn't say this to me. He said it to her and she passed it on to me. And I just said, I'm pretty sure my husband would disagree. Oh. I'm pretty sure coming home to your wife lying on the floor in the middle of the office, staring at the ceiling is not the sexiest thing to come home to. <laughs> you okay? Yeah, it's just, I mean, what's the point? You know, I did, there's nothing sexy about that. And so, yeah, you're a writer because you kind of have to be a writer because, I mean. Yeah, and then at the at the same time, I guess for writers, you know, um, if I came home and saw my girlfriend lying on the floor staring at the ceiling because she was losing her mind over a character, it would be the sexiest thing because I'd be like, oh yeah, living your truth, living totally <laughs> authentically, let's make out. You know, it's just... <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, my, now I have to ask him if he felt that way. I'm going to guess no. But yeah, it's just, um, you know, we, we it's, we, it, the, the, the struggle, the struggle is, you know, the struggle is interesting. And also even, you know, I, I, I say this in my writing workshops, but even, um, even if you don't write for the day, but you show up and you're just, and you're trying yeah, you're actually still working on it. You're you're you're, the, you're, you're still. In that it. is very true, and that's something I don't think non-writers understand, and I think writers understand that. Um, you know that you may you may have a day that is just six straight out. One of my friends talked about six straight hours of Law and Order. I'm more of a sitcom person. Yeah. But but the um, okay, let me paste. Let me think about it. Let me. Uh, I I have one friend who is married to a writer who's also created several series and, and he's just like incredibly talented. I wish I was that talented, but she was complaining one day. And, you know, I mean, I complain about my husband's to my girlfriend. Sometimes we vent about our, our husbands, our families, whatever. 
but there, and normally I am on her side because she's my friend, but she complained about, so I walk into his office and he's asleep on his desk. And I said, you have no idea how hard that day was for him. And she was like, okay, all right, back up. Like, no, you just don't get it. Try being in that office for a day. I mean, he deserved a nap, I'm sure, you know? Yeah, wow. <laughs> because that's part of it. Part of the process is, and part of the process is you have this idea of where your character is going to go and then they go somewhere else. Um, which, yeah. you know, I've, I've heard writers talk about, isn't that invigorating? And to me, it's like, no, I had a plan in place. No, it's not invigorating. It means now we're off over here and I wanted to be over here. And, but it's good you get out of the way of your characters because what's, what's a trip is when our characters start to make those decisions. Yeah. That means we're doing it right. And when they go, no, no, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. And you're like, oh, yeah, why? Exactly. No. Exactly. And then, but that's the that's when you're in the pocket. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and I actually that there in X's wedding, I had this happen at one point. Was uh, my my original premise was that uh, Samantha is going to her ex's wedding, and at one point, the, so the bride is basically like one of the most famous. This was written. It's a little retro. It's written about the '90s, so I have a lot of '90s jokes in there. Yeah. Um, uh, but the main character, uh, not the main character, uh, the, the Sam has an ex-husband. She got married the day out of college. She was divorced within two years, uh, because it's the nineties and no one's on Facebook and no one's texting and no one's tweeting and the internet isn't all that big. She doesn't know what happened to him. There was a time when, you know, your exes were just in exile. You just didn't know what happened. Yeah. To them. I don't know how this generation like breaks up with people and can still see them on social media. Because, I mean, like I have exes on social media, but I've been married 20 years. So I look at their stuff and it's like, oh, good for him. Like, I don't, it, there's no sense of, and we just broke up a week ago and now he's already dating this blonde. Like, I don't yeah. know how the generation does this. It's, it, it's, it's disconcerting because there was a beauty to the time when I used to go have to um, go to a phone booth to make a phone call, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, it, and there was no worry about it. I'm checking for my cell phone all the time now. I mean, yeah, I don't need to. We I actually function fine without it. I <laughs> I would prefer it. I I out of habit. I've always got my phone. My first book, um, which was at this point about fifteen years ago, uh, is called Total Waste of Makeup. And it in the first line, the premise of it is this woman who's turning forty has decided to write a book of advice for her great great grand niece. So I ever I have the advice in the middle of the book but she doesn't follow any of her own advice. The first line is don't wait by the phone and she's waiting by the phone. And because I wrote this, it came out in 2006. So I would have written it in like 2002, 2003. It was sold in 2004 and it came out just the beginning of 2006. At that time, people had cell phones, but they still had their landlines. They weren't yeah. online. There was no texting. And so she was waiting by the phone and I make a joke about how, you know, one day we're going to have a necklace and you're just going to be waiting by the phone all the time. And now we have the Apple watch. So I was right. And I don't know. That's another thing. I don't know how people, because if somebody sends me a text, I write back right away. I yeah. would suck at dating in this age because if somebody sent me a text, I would write back right away. Like I've had friends talk about, well, no, he sent me the text. So I'm debating like, do I wait three hours to get back to him? And it's like, then you're just showing you're rude. No, because he needs time to think about what he wrote and he needs time to miss me and whatever. And it's like, you got the text, answer the text. That's why he didn't call you. If he called you, that would be different. Cause 
well, just in my mind, if somebody calls you, you might be in the middle of something, you know, yeah. that you might be whatever. But to me, a text is like, I always write back. Yeah. Right away. Because to me, I don't, I don't know why I do. Maybe it's because I'm not like, I already played these games. I already waited by the phone. Only at least when I waited by the phone, you could leave and go shopping and take your mind off of stuff and come back and look at the answering machine. Yeah. And see if there was the red dot was beeping. <laughs> And now you go shopping, you're still staring at your phone. And also, I'm pretty sure you're still staring at the phone and, and your mother's still the one texting you. Like it beeps yeah. and you get excited and it's just your mother. Um, so yeah, so that was part of, so X's wedding is set in the 1990s. So she has no idea what's happened to her ex-husband. And it turns out her ex-husband is marrying one of the most famous women in the world. Yeah. And uh, she's a comical character. She's on her fifth wedding. She's going to, I mean, the, the, the other character, uh, the, her name's Isabella and Isabella has her fifth wedding of the century coming up. And cause she's been married so many times. And at one point in, as I was writing, she immediately assumes Sam will be in her wedding. And it wasn't something I had planned, but it's like, because the character is a complete narcissist. Of course she would assume Sam was going to be in her wedding. Right. Know? And, and it was, it helped my book actually a lot because there are then added complications because Sam is at her ex's wedding also as a bridesmaid yeah. and, and, and ends up ghostwriting Isabella's uh, biography. So like Sam has gone from not seeing her ex-husband in six years to suddenly being in his life a lot. And, you know, nowadays, I mean, if your ex, if in your case, you know, your ex-wife, if your ex was married, was about to marry one of the most famous people in the world, you would know all about it. Because even if you didn't want to know about it, your friends would be gossiping about it. Like there'd be no way not to know that. And the benefit of, of doing something in the 90s is, remember when we could just not think they exist? Yeah. <laughs> remember when they were just dead to you and you didn't have to see how perfect their lives were? Because <laughs> I know logically that uh, social media is curated and that we all have a perfect life on social media. I know that logically, but inside, I still feel like everyone has this figured out and I don't. And I, and that's when I, that's what social media scares me because I think it's giving us so many wrong, um, uh, so many what do you call it? See, I'm losing my words in COVID. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, we're, we're getting false information. Alternate like, realities. Yeah, we yeah, are. Like, being like, like so much where we're not interacting with the person in real life where you're like, how you doing? And they go, fine. And you're like, oh, okay, so, so something's wrong. You know, it, it's... <laughs> I, yes, I actually, uh, a year or two ago, I remember calling someone who picked up and she said, fine, and she'd been crying. And so you immediately know where we are. I mean, right. so then, what happened? Whereas, right. yeah, on social media, if she said, oh, everything's good. You know, I'm at a yeah. funeral this weekend or whatever. But but yeah, it, it you're right. Fine. Yeah. And we and I think we need to we need the full communication, you know, and, and it's so it sucks during COVID to not be as much it's around. gotten worse with COVID. I think it's gotten worse with the politics. I mean, I, I will say I'm a liberal, but um, it's gotten worse with politics. I have friends who are more conservative than me. I also have friends who are more liberal than me. It's interesting because there are a couple ways in which I'm kind of purple. And so I have friends sometimes on both sides and you can be at a kitchen table and have an argument actually based on facts and you're respectful of each other and you're talking and the, and the tone of voice, you know, shows you're actually having, I like having political discussions yeah. with people. 
um, online, uh, it, I, I have found that things are turning into arguments. Um, I have one, I have one friend who I have known since high school and she put up some, and, and she is, she is Muslim. She has had things happen. Like I went and saw the black KKK movie with her, uh, the, the, the one that Spike Lee did. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the movie, she came out and said, oh, when I heard that dog barking, I knew there was going to be a, a, a flaming cross outside. And I said, how did you figure that out? And she said, because when we lived in Oklahoma, there was a flaming cross outside our, our yard. I had known her years. I'd never known that story. But this is a woman who has been, you know, the victim of racism. And, and, um, and she made, during the BLM protest, she made a comment about, I thought we weren't supposed to be leaving. I thought we were trying to get rid of this virus. Why are there all these people out on the streets? Yeah. You know, what about COVID? What about whatever? And, and she said, what happened? And I immediately wrote back something along the lines of what happened was we saw someone murdered in front of our own eyes while he smiled at the camera and it's a cop and this has got to stop or something along those lines. In a normal kitchen with two people talking, that's exactly how that conversation would have gone. Yeah, And I then wrote privately to her and I said, you of all people know what the problem is here. And what happened, unfortunately, was she lost a couple of friends on Facebook who called her a racist for her comments. And I, it, it was one of those things. It's like she made one comment for one moment because she's frustrated. Yeah. And she immediately switched on that. She immediately was like, okay, yeah, I guess we do need these protests. She put other stuff up on her while supporting the BLM movement later. But it was, you know, we all change our minds sometimes. We all might say a stupid thing over dinner sometime about politics. Might, I, it's guaranteed for me. <laughs> I'm gonna say three stupid things. I've said three stupid things. Oh, at least, and if I had wine, I mean, <laughs> you know, and I, I have really smart friends. I'm the dumbest one in the room a lot of the times. Of course I'm saying the wrong thing. Yeah. But we are, the problem with social media, and. I hope she's okay that I told that story. But the problem with social media is you're not even allowed to have that argument. You're not even allowed yeah. to say, but COVID and have somebody come back to, but this is worse. You can't even have those debates right now. And, and it's, it's um, everyone, I feel like everyone thinks they're hosting the daily show on, mm -hmm. on social media. I'm like, no, yeah. you, you, you're not good. You're not funny. You don't have a right. staff. You're just yelling at me. Yeah, you yeah. don't have a staff. That's the other thing about Daily Show. They have a staff. Don't, you know, you don't want to mess with John Oliver because you're not just, like when somebody, when somebody goes after John Oliver, yeah, he always comes back. You know, he brings a gun to a, 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 a grapefruit spoon fight. I mean, he's like, just boom. He's got writers. He's got yeah. people spending all week thinking of the perfect comeback. You don't want to mess with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're messing with a staff of writers who are at the top of their game and- yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like messing with comedians they are going to win no matter what because they, they can get a room back oh um, i know i know i have i have said i think one of the reasons trump did as well as he did is there aren't a lot of republican comedians and he acts like a stand-up so much of the time oh, and i think that's part of what appeals to certain trumpers is the whole you know he tells it like it is he's acting like right. a comedian there aren't a lot of republican comedians there are some um you know, although I would argue one of them is not funny, but there, I mean, there are some, uh, but I mean, I don't think Dennis Miller's funny anymore. I think Dennis Miller has the problem. I think Bill Maher has this problem too, on the other side of it, of they've become old, bitter men. 
and old bitter white men. And, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, one of the, one of the Monty Python guys a couple of years ago talking about, you know, well, I'd be working more if I was a black lesbian. It was like, oh my God, don't say that out loud. You know, it's because you just come off sounding like a bitter old man. It's not, and it's, and you're not making your point to the younger people anyway, which I think whatever point they're trying to make, I don't, um, well, the thing, yeah, I mean, with stand up and with like Dennis Miller and uh, Bill Maher is that they're smug. Yeah. The smug does not work in comedy because no. you're not you're not hitting the points and showing vulnerabilities. It's, right. It's and that's how you, that's how you do good stand up is you, you, yeah. need to, you need to go, hey, I'm the idiot. But guess what? We're all idiots. It's kind of yeah. like that's the main thing. Exactly. exactly. And when it's when the nose goes high and it's, you know. So this is what I'm going to deliver some I'm going to tell you something. I'm yeah. going to yell at you. And that's, you're right about social media. I feel sometimes like I'm getting shouted at on both sides. Yeah. Like even yeah. when I'm agreeing with people because they're not being particularly funny and they're just writing something. And I really try to keep my politics out of social media, not because I have a problem with my politics. I mean, I, I, I will say this election coming up, I have vote stuff all over the place. I mean, I, I will probably take it down, but I had information about uh, who to call if there's a problem at your polls with with violence or with protesters. I had one uh, information on my byline about uh, if you needed to have your ballot cured, if you uh, were one of the provisional ballots. Like I put up a lot of information, particularly this time of year, but I don't comment very much about the politics themselves because I don't think I'm changing anybody's mind. Yeah. So to, again, it goes back to, at least for me, putting that energy out there. It's like, you know, I vote, uh, here's a shirt that I loved and I put it, I, 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 this woman in, I live in Los Angeles. This woman was wearing a t-shirt that I absolutely loved. And it said, fine, period, Biden, period. But this is bullshit. Vote 2020. <laughs> and I loved the shirt and I put it up and I, I thought about getting the shirt. I thought like, I wanted to go up and ask her where the shirt was. And I didn't end up getting the shirt for a variety of reasons. The biggest of which is I'm a mom and having the word bullshit on a t-shirt. I just sort of felt like, oh, there are kids and the six-year-olds will go, oh, I know what that word is. And so I didn't do it. But I put up the comment and I talked to a few people and then I took it down because I thought that's still a political comment. And although I thought it was funny, it's like, I just felt like I don't, I feel like the political comments we make on social media are a lot like bumper stickers. You're not really yeah. changing anyone's mind. Um, you know, so, so I try not to do politics. I'm not perfect at it. Um, right. You know, I've also put up information about COVID and I realize people have politicized that. And um, oh, it's so crazy. I don't personally yeah. think that should be political, but no, but fair enough. Um, Do you think that's only political in the United States? I really don't know about other countries that they're making. From what I understand, it. I mean, I, from what I understand, yeah, it's mostly United States. Thing, yeah. Although uh, in Canada, they've had some protests. But, you know, I have a friend. First of all, my husband has a Chinese client. And so we first heard about this back in January because they had, you know, quarantined everybody uh, during the new year, which, which in China is like this week, week and a half long thing. And it's sort of a combination of Christmas, Thanksgiving, uh, New Year's. And it's, you know, like families come home for the week and a half and they go and see grandma and whatever. And when that first happened, I, you know, we didn't know we were going to be quarantined. And so I made a joke about like, there's going to be a Chinese filmmaker who's going to do a comedy about this. Like, 
you've gone to see grandma and now you can't leave the house for two weeks. (laughs) And then it extended and you couldn't even get home. So you went to see grandma and you went to see your drunk uncle who's spouting politics at you and you can't leave. And I thought that would be very funny. And then then I had a friend in in February who lives in Taiwan, who uh, their daughter, He's my age, but he, he had kids a little bit later than me. So uh, they, the, the kid was on online school for a few weeks. And I just thought that was really funny. Like, yeah. oh, right. So wait, so your wife basically has to be a teacher. At the time, it was just like, wow, someone should write about that. That's just weird. The thing about in China and in Taiwan, though, it's not political. It is people wear masks in their mind to save other people. That yeah. is their culture. And so I am seeing... Maybe because in Asia they have worn masks. They have um, this same friend. They um, they ended up. They didn't postpone their wedding. They eloped and then postponed the party. Yeah. Uh, and this was back during SARS because that just it's 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 just cultural. It's just well, if something goes wrong, you all come together. Yeah. And um, so I have not I I have not seen that here. I I think we're mostly the ones politicizing it but there are probably other countries politicizing it too that just don't know about yeah exactly i feel so disconnected from the world it's like none of my friends are going these places now you know it's like back in the day you know back pre-march it's like oh so you know what's going on in greece and you have two people that have been there in the last year and they're like oh my god it's this and this and there's right and because we know writers also i'll know i've known people who you know they go somewhere for six weeks they go you know work for six weeks they go you know well i'm gonna just try and figure this out this book or whatever and nobody's doing that either so yeah it's it's we're very insular right now i really hope for a vaccine soon and 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 there are other i mean like my, my son's school is online. So, I mean, he actually, for the most part, really likes it and he's done very well with it. I feel like this is not college. Right. Like, you know, we have these, uh, there was one night where we just had this really interesting conversation until like two or three in the morning, which was great, except you're not supposed to be having that awesome conversation at two in the morning, until two in the morning with your mother. You're yeah. supposed to have it with the cute girl down the hall. You're not supposed to have it with your mother. Like, I'm never going to get grandchildren if we keep this up. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. That's funny. Kim, yeah, and, and I made a joke that when we first, because also his school was one of the first ones to say, well, we're going online for at least a few weeks. Um, and they said it on a Tuesday and by Friday, like m- most of the colleges in the country, I mean, it happened that quickly. They yeah. were one of the first schools to say, nope, we're going home. Um, and also that Friday, he moved out of his dorm. They were not messing around. Wow, wow, yeah. Um, and we knew because, I mean, I, I if, if you're moving kids out of the dorm, it's like, this is not for two weeks. Exactly. The rest of the year, you're not doing, you know, you wouldn't move them out of the dorm. You'd say, okay, well, hopefully you had no dishes in the sink. Off you go, but you wouldn't make them move out. Yeah. Um, so I made the joke about, okay, and now my family and I will be doing our off, off Broadway rendition of No Exit. And everyone thought that was very funny. And that was back in March. And now I'm just like, seriously, we're, we're in eternity. We're still here. <laughs> we're here. It's fine. <laughs> everything's fine everything's fine <laughs> thank you Kim it's been great having you on the show thank you so much uh, X's wedding everybody buy my ex's wedding Kim Grunenfelder on Drinks with Tony check out her book My Ex's Wedding 
Next week on the show, we have William Loving. And coming in January, we have both Lee Goldberg and Todd Goldberg. Separate episodes, yet still sibling writers. Have a great weekend and just know Christmas is going to suck a big old ball this year. Maybe even two balls. New Year's Eve too. So buy books, buy 10 books. Just read, read, read. And I'll see you next Wednesday.